0: Broadcasting location. This is a test. For the next 60 seconds, this station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcast system. America, here comes the relief from the pain. Unapologetically. This is Lock and Low with Bill Brady.
1: Number three. This is Lock and Load, and I'm joined now by writer Dean Weingarten. Good afternoon, sir.
2: Good afternoon, Bill. I'm glad to be here.
1: Yes, sir. It's always good, always good to have Mr. Weingarten. It's oh, and I mean, well. We got a doozy to begin with. So apparently there's some judge in the Third Circuit. What is this? What is this pilgrim in the Third Circuit? What's what's his issue here?
2: Well, this is a, a woman judge, and I think she was uh, fairly uh, one of the earlier uh, women judges. She was born in 1935, and she oh. graduated from Harvard Law School in 1965. Wow! So she's in she's in senior status in the Third Circuit, uh, which isn't that unusual. And, uh, well, let's see, she'll be 88 in, uh, I think, tomorrow. Uh, So, uh, you know, she's not a spring chicken. She's been around a long time. And she actually experienced a a bit of uh, the... Uh, you know the uh, World War II and uh, maybe even a, a little bit of the Depression before that. Yeah. So, so she has a lot of experience. <laughs> and go ahead.
1: No, I'm just laughing. So, <laughs> so, yes, sir, I'm just listening.
2: So, um, and her name is Janet Richards Roth, and she was appointed to the Third Circuit in 1991. Oh that's thirty some years ago. And you know I'm not I'm trying to make the case that just because you're old doesn't mean you don't know what's going on. She wrote her um, her opinion, her dissent from the case uh, is uh, well written. It was easy to understand. I just disagree with her premises. Um, and this was in the case, in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals of Range v. Lombardo, which I've written about before, uh, that uh, the Third Circuit includes Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, Delaware, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And in this case, uh, Range uh, had committed a minor crime. He had misstated his income on an application uh, for welfare, and he had uh, been fined and put on probation, and then he completed all that has had a blameless life since then. And he says, that shouldn't be enough to take away my Second Amendment rights. And most of the judges in the circuit, and it was an N. banc decision, so it had, uh, let's see, 16 judges altogether. No, 15, excuse me, 15 judges and 9 of them concurred i mean were part of the majority opinion and then there were another two that concurred in a separate opinion and then there were four judges that dissented and uh Janet uh, Richards raw wrote her own dissent separate of the others so it is it's separate it's it's not all of the, the judges agreed with her And what was fascinating about her dissent was that I read it pretty closely, and it seems to make a very strong case based on progressive philosophy. Not on the Constitution, but on progressive philosophy. And she cites what I would say has been the aggressive, egregious overreach of the Commerce Clause under progressive judges since about 1937. And I think it was in 52, 51, 52, when we had a case uh, called Wickard uh, in the United States where judges ruled that a man growing crops on his own land to feed his own animals was sufficiently close to interstate commerce or affecting interstate commerce that uh, the federal government could regulate it. And that started this cascade of decisions where the Commerce Clause has been interpreted so that the federal government can regulate virtually anything in the United States on the theory that just about anything that happens in the United States affects interstate commerce. And that's the hook on which she hangs her dissent. And what she says is that um, it was decided a while back that Congress has the authority under the Commerce Clause to regulate the possession of handguns. Well, well, there, there were cases which upheld the, uh, NSA, the NFA, National Firearms Act. But in, in my opinion, I've read a number of the cases. Uh, some of them are pretty famous. One of them is called cases. And they're really bad decisions. Right. I mean, they just, they contradict themselves. They basically say, we want it this way because we want it this way uh they're not good decisions. Some of them quote Miller. Some of them say that Miller is not applicable because we don't want Miller to be applicable. In other words, they essentially follow progressive philosophy, and the progressive philosophy is we don't like the constitutional restraints on the federal government, so we will either ignore those constitutional restraints – Or we will say, that was then, this is now. we got to change things, and the Constitution has to be a living document, so we're not going to pay attention to how it was meant to operate. And let's see if I can get a quote here. Um, Let's see. Uh, Here's a sentence from her dissent. Range presents a distinguishable... Distinguishable question, whether a federal statute which the Supreme Court has upheld as a valid exercise of Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause is constitutional as applied to him. And then she says that uh, the parties in the majority conflate these spheres of authority and fail to address binding President affirming Congress's power to regulate the possession of firearms in interstate commerce. But the key here is that if Congress has the authority to regulate firearms, the possession, individual possession of firearms, in interstate commerce by the Commerce Clause, the Bill of Rights has effectively been neutered, because then the Commerce Clause overrides your right to possess a firearm uh, under the Second Amendment. So she's making the argument very explicitly that the Commerce Clause overrides the Second Amendment. Well, if that's the case, and she's saying it because the federal government, she claims, has the authority to regulate possession of something that is related to interstate commerce. And virtually under the cases that are looked at, everything is related to interstate commerce. And by that, Uh, theory.
1: Well, hang on for me. Hang on for me. I got a question for you. And coming up on the first break, this is, uh, this is published, published on the 15th at amoland.com. This is a fascinating article because this is the way some judges think. There's this lady on here. Apparently she's, she's been there for a bit and this is how she thinks. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. Welcome back. This is Lock and Low talking to Dean Weingarten, talking about this decision out of the Third Circuit. Now, there's this statement here. The federal government has had more power than the Bill of Rights allows. Yes. That's interesting. I would
2: say that is correct. The, well, uh, and a lot of this is from the Commerce Clause. Yeah. When you When you twist logic to the extent that virtually everything, is covered by interstate commerce. Right. Because everything has some either an effect on interstate commerce or has some part of it has traveled in interstate commerce. The commerce clause essentially collapses because it means everything. Right. And what progressive judges have done over the last uh, 70 years is essentially give the federal government power over everything by claiming it all fits under the Commerce Clause. Uh, what Judge Ross particularly claims, that the Second Amendment is essentially gutted by the Commerce Clause, but under her argument, the First Amendment can also easily be gutted. After all, almost all First Amendment issues are related to interstate commerce one way or another. Your computer wasn't built in one state, and in any case, it affects interstate commerce in other states. Printing presses traveled in interstate commerce or were made of metal that traveled in interstate commerce. Uh, Telephone lines cross interstate. Uh, Even paper is made in one state and shipped to another and then used perhaps in the publication of a book in another state. So you see how this this idiocy of claiming that interstate commerce essentially is everything. is just a massive power grab by the courts to give the legislature or themselves enormous power over everything. Right. And what's kind of funny is that Ross tries to use the that was then, this is now argument, which is very, very common. That's it's about half of progressive thought can be summed up in their argument, that was then, this is now. Things have changed. Therefore we have to do things differently and we have to ignore the Constitution because that was then. This
1: is now. So, you know, okay, next question if I may. Now, isn't that really stepping beyond what a a judge is supposed to look at something and say, does this fit within the law? And they're saying that well, the law, with this, this whole that was then, this is now thing, the law, the Bill of Rights, everything else, they're saying that it's subject to my interpretation is what they're saying, right?
2: Yes, exactly correct. That's exactly it. The idea of a living constitution is there, in my opinion, essentially to take power away from the people and give it to the legislature and the judges, and even the executive in a lot of cases. Uh, It's essentially a power grab. and It's a way to ignore the law when you want to ignore it. Well, we've got to do this because things are different now, and therefore we're going to ignore the Bill of Rights. We've got to do this because things are different now, so we're going to say these administrative agencies can make law whatever they want to without the legislature passing a law. Well, that was then. This is now. Things are more complicated. But the argument doesn't really hold up, because if you look at Roth in this case as, well, You know, in modern times, things are are different. You know, there's more commerce. It moves faster. But the same arguments could be applied when the Second Amendment was ratified. Most gunsmiths didn't make their guns out of steel produced in their state. Many of them ordered locks, gun locks, from another state or even from England or France to put on their, the guns they were making. Uh, the lead was usually mined in a different state for bullets that were fired out of those guns. Powder was manufactured in only a couple of locations. Uh, you can see that this, this whole argument would have been silly if it was brought up in during the ratification. And during ratification... And and Justice Thomas is really good on this. And he says that if you look at what was said during the ratification process of the Constitution and what people thought about the commerce and what clause and what commerce meant back then, it related to the buying and selling of goods and services trafficked across state lines. It didn't have anything to do with manufacturing. It didn't have anything to do with agriculture that did not cross state lines. Right. In other words, if you grew food in your own state and fed it to your own animals, that was not commerce, as envisioned by the founding fathers when they wrote the commerce clause. If you bought something in your own state and sold it to somebody else in your own state, that was not interstate commerce, that was intrastate commerce. If you manufactured something in your own state, that was intrastate. That was not interstate commerce. Now, if you shipped it to another state, yes, then it would be interstate commerce. And, uh, you know, he puts forward this powerful argument about what the meaning of interstate commerce was when the Constitution was ratified. It's it's brilliantly written. It's included in the article. I included it in the article. But it's it's absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. And it shows how far we have strayed from what the Constitution intended and how much power uh, progressive judges essentially have granted to the legislature, the executive branch, and frankly, to themselves directly to change uh what our laws are and how our society functions to something they want, which isn't ever run by people and which also takes away from the protections in the Constitution meant to protect uh, minorities of every sort, whether they be of color or economic class or Rural versus urban or whatever, those protections were built into the Constitution and they are being under, have been heavily undermined by the Commerce Clause, the way it's interpreted. I would say by an egregiously false interpretation of the Commerce Clause. And it's good to note that the draft is in a very significant minority here.
1: Right. That's good to the know.
2: third cricket? We're 11?
1: Hang on, hang on. It's coming We're coming up on the next break, and we'll finish this on the other side. Talking to Dean the, the The name of the article is Progressive Judge Says Commerce Clause Overrides the Bill of Rights. That's interesting. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. just about every corner of this country three million miles in my career I spend a lot of hours on the road but I love being my own boss the road can be a beautiful place but you're out here on your own there certainly are risks I'm
2: Charles I'm a truck driver a husband and a father and that's why I choose federal
0: When it comes to online gun shops, Primary Arms is one of America's largest retailers of new firearms, parts, accessories, and gear. They stock over
1: 600 popular brands, all with everyday low prices and fast shipping. If you
0: ever have any questions about a product, their team of product experts will help you make the right purchase. So, don't settle for less. Visit PrimaryArms.com today and see why so many gun owners make it their first destination for all of their
1: firearms In the 21st century, the handgun has become the preeminent self defense tool. At CH Precision, we specialize in taking your weapon to the highest degree of functionality possible. With a complete array of goods and services specializing in red dot sight installation, CH Precision will help you realize the most effective handgun the first time. If you need slide milling, installation, or accessories, go to chpws.com. CH Precision. Welcome to the Boom Squad. At Chambers Custom, we have one job. Welcome back. This is Lock and Load talking to Dean Weingarten. We were just talking about this article about the Commerce Clause. Is there anything you need to add to that to finish that up before we move on? Well,
2: I'd like to emphasize that 11 of 15 judges uh, disagreed with Judge Roth. Right. It's not certain that uh, three of the dissenters may also have disagreed. They just didn't say so or not. She is the only one. Uh, nobody joined her on her uh, dissent in this case, and that's a good thing. And one of the majority uh, penned a concurrence which specifically addressed her arguments. And I'm going to read it here. It's short. It's a conception of the Second Amendment right uh, that retcons, I think that's retroactively brings in, uh, the uh, argument modern commerce power into early American state law is anachronistic and flunks Bruins history and tradition test. Setting the federal floor through a combination of antebellum state police power and Congress's post New Deal commerce authority, as the defense proposed, would underprotect the constitutional right to keep and bear arms. So that's the judge's. Of- has his head on straight in my opinion. Right. Okay. And he is with the majority. Well that's but a relief. <laughs> it's worth <laughs> noting that we have this judge out there who's making a very serious case. She is she is not she's not being sarcastic. She's not making a joke. She is making a serious case that she believes that the commerce clause overrides the bill of rights.
1: Well, I, I'm sure she is, and I'm sure she does, right? I, I understand that. I get it. Uh, the only thing I, I don't understand is that, uh, you know, that that sounds more like something that she's making up for herself. That sh- this is her interpretation. And uh, I have seen, you know, I've seen liberal judges, leftist judges get out there that actually just go by the law, no matter how distasteful they may find it.
2: Yeah, there are. There are. And I think we're winning that argument. But I think if you look back into the 30s, the, the late 30s and uh, 40s and uh, 50s and even in, well into the 60s and 70s. Right. Heck, I, I think you make a great argument for a lot of very bad decisions occurring in the middle 60s to the middle 70s. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we've just had uh, a Roe v. Wade overturned, which was a terrible constitutional decision. Right. And, and it, that's the same. It's the same. It, they didn't use the Commerce Clause, I don't think. But it was a very similar argument that was then this is now we are going to do things the way we want it to do, despite what the constitution says. Yeah.
1: That's sort of an, an admission, isn't it? That's sort of an admission knowing that what they're doing is unconstitutional.
2: Yes. Well, they usually don't put it in those
1: words. Well, I'm sure they right. don't. Yeah. They? Why would they? But it's
2: What they do, you know, they'll say, well, look at the penumbras, uh, We think that uh, this applies to this because of that, and uh, they don't really make the solid arguments, but they can put out a lot of word salad.
1: Sure. It's a dumb, bro. (laughs) Okay. Do we want to talk about this bear?
2: Yeah, we've got a couple bears.
1: uh, Now, Tell me about this bear. Let's let's look at the title. The article is titled, Montana Bear Researcher's 357 Magnum and Two Bear Attacks with Shots Fired. So, tell me about this.
2: So, one of the things that uh I and uh, others did when we were when we started researching how effective pistols are in defense against bears is we made the decision that we would include every incident in which a handgun was fired in defense against bears. And one of the benefits of that is that it uh It does away with selection bias. In other words, what we've seen, what I've seen in some other research, and I'm not going to name names right now because I can't easily back it up on air, is a lot of selection bias. Well, we're going to look at this incident and this incident. Oh, but we don't like that incident now. And, uh, yeah, this one's good. That one's good. Oh, and I will say that we see that all the time in people trying to make a case for gun control. They will often say, for example, Well, of the rich countries, uh, most uh, people, most of those rich countries have gun control and they have homicide rates far lower than the United States. Well, why did they choose rich countries? And how did they choose which ones were rich and which weren't? They have data from all the countries in the world, so how come they went to just this small subset? Well, because it reinforces their argument. It's a method of lying with statistics that we call selection um, bias. So what we did is we made the uh, decision that we were going to include all cases where a pistol was fired in defense against bears. We weren't going to exclude any. And what we found, by the way, is that warning shots worth a fair amount of the time. We don't know exactly because it's really hard to quantify because most cases where warning shots are fired against bears, if they work, they're never reported. What happened here uh, and how this article came about was that, uh, let's see, a game warden, let's see, Chris was his name, had to shoot a grizzly bear that was being released. I think it was about 1970 some I have this, it, the incident, but I don't have it right in front of me. And he um, mentioned, while being interviewed, that there had been a case that he knew of where a uh, one of the employees of Fish and Game in Montana had shot and killed a grizzly bear in self-defense with a twenty two revolt. But there wasn't a lot of detail to it. There weren't, wasn't a name or an exact place or time. And so I started looking and asking people to if they had any knowledge of this so that we could get enough information to document it and include it in the database. Well, that resulted in Alan Schallenberger, who was a bear researcher in Montana for many years, he contacted me and says, yes, I know about this incident. I was partnered with the guy who uh, shot the bear. I handled his twenty two revolver. He told me all about it. It happened in the summer of 1962, and this was the model of the revolver, and here's what happened. So we were able to document that case and include it. But in talking to Alan, it turned out there were three other incidents in which he had fired a handgun in Defense against bears. So of course, we wanted to include those in the uh, in the database as well. And the first one was in 1976, and that's in, in a different article. Um, and it was uh, he was camping, and this bear just refused to go away. It just circled around and around his campsite, and it got darker and darker. And eventually, he pulled out his .357, and fired warning shots, and the bear left. But in this incident in 1977, the first one, uh, or the middle one, he was uh, doing research, and they were snaring bears, and uh, then they would drug them with a dart gun, and they would do their weighing and their measuring and everything else they did in the research. Well, they had captured a big four grizzly bear. And that boar was accompanied by a sow grizzly. They were a a mating pair. And the boar was in a snare, but the sow wasn't. And she started to take objection to her mate being, you know, manhandled by these people and charged at a trot, he says, from about 40 yards away, and he pulled out his colt python Nice choice of a 357 and fired shots in the air and she swerved away and didn't come back. So that was a pretty clear case of, uh, defense to the use of warning shots working.
1: Hang on for me. Hang on for me, if you will. We'll be right back talking to Dean Weingarten. This is Lock and Mode. We're talking to Dean Weingart and talking about these bears that they've been, uh, this last now. This took place in the 70s, yeah?
2: Correct. Yeah, the first incident where the bear was circling his camp was in 1976. The incident I just related where the bear, the female, the sow bear, was trotting toward him uh, and uh, the the snared mate was in 1977. And then the next instance will be in 1978. But in the the one where uh, I just related it, he had someone there who had a shotgun who was uh, supposed to be there as protection against uh, bears. But the fellow, because they were busy with this snared male bear and doing all the measurements and everything, he had laid his shotgun down, and he laid it down as it happened in the direction that the female bear, the sow bear, was coming from. So he'd had to move towards the sow to get the shotgun, and so he didn't do that. And uh, the fellow, um, let's see, uh, Schallenberger, uh, the researcher, used his .357 to scare off the, the bear with warning shots. Now, in the 19, mm-hmm. and that shows you that it's one of the reasons, I think, that pistols are more effective in defending against bears than rifles or shotguns, and that is that people tend to put down the rifle or shotgun when they get busy, uh, whether they're cooking at a campfire or answering a call of nature or uh, just uh, using binoculars, whatever. One of the advantages of a pistol is that it's usually carried in a holster on the person so you have it when you need it. So in 1978, uh, uh, uh Salenberger was, um Alan Salenberger's is his name, uh, was doing more research with bears and he had a helper with him. Keith On, was a young biologist at a bachelor's degree, University of Montana, and they had a radio collar bears and they had a radio receiver to track the bears. So they went up on a mountain. Tracking bears, but they'd seen a number of of grizzly bears up there, and they wanted to see what was going on. So when they got to about 8,200 feet, which was above the timber line there, they spotted this large adult grizzly, and they could determine from the radio caller that it was the same uh, uh, boar, grizzly, that they had had in the snare when they when he scared away the sow a year earlier. And it was coming toward them from about 300 yards away. Now, 300 yards are pretty good ways away. Um, but they could tell because of the radio tracker that that was that male bear. So Alan pulled out his three fifty seven and fired two shots in the air. And he didn't notice any effect on uh, the grizzly bear and they ducked behind a boulder and he quickly reloaded his revolver and uh, they had uh, the shotgun with them and they made sure that was loaded and they were waiting and if the bear peered over the top of the boulder they were going to kill the bear but the bear never showed up so i figure that this is a case where we can't determine if the warning shots were effective or not. They didn't notice any effect on the bear. It was 300 yards away. That's a long ways away. indeed. And yet the bear altered. It didn't continue to come toward them. They never had to shoot more shots. So I say we can't really determine whether those warning shots were effective or not. There's just too much uncertainty there because they did not see any immediate effect of the shot. But we have to include it in the database because those shots were fired as defense against bears. But I rate it as indeterminate. Can't really tell if they were affected. Just too far away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that, you know, so uh, the, the thing that amazes me about these stories that you're telling me Is the fact that it seems like with all the I mean, was it just not known as much in the seventies that if you went out there and you were in bear territory and maybe you darted a bear in bear territory that the bear would another bear would what should we say, be curious about that and then Yeah,
2: you know, and if they're mated bear they might not like you messing around with their mate.
1: They might not.
2: Uh, I think that the people understood that pretty well. That's why they were out there armed. And Schallenberger says something about it. He says, back then, that was before the grizzly bears were protected, and we could hunt them in Montana, and a shot didn't ring the dinner bell for them. Uh, You know, because now, with the bears being protected, they hear gunshots. And in many areas, they'll run toward the gunshot. Figuring there's a down big game animal, and if they don't get the animal, they're likely to get a gut file. And many people have made the claim that, if, that shooting in these areas attracts grizzly bears. But back then, bears were hunted, and Schallenberger says that he believes that's one of the reasons that warning shots were more effective at that time. And that makes sense to me. I guess so. I think. There's um, there's an article that uh, a retired game biologist from Alaska wrote uh, at the American Hunter, and he examined dozens and dozens of cases. It appears from the numbers he gives. He doesn't give exact numbers, but there were 41 cases where there were very detailed uh, in- interviews. And then there were, he said, about the same number of not as detailed cases, and then his own personal experiences, which appear to be at least two or three. So we're looking in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, six, seven dozen cases. And he's reluctant to put numbers on things, and he's reluctant to make definitive statements. But it's obvious from the article that warning shots work in a lot of cases. But there are also cases where they don't work. And so that's, that's an important, uh, thing to note. I was looking today, rereading, uh, a study on the effectiveness of bear spray from, uh, published in 2008, uh, by Herrero and Tom Smith. And it's been, it's a very significant study because it's been quoted all, all over the place. But it's interesting that in that study, they say 14% of the incidents that they looked at, the sound and sight of the bear spray were the most effective parts of the bear spray. Well, that kind of fits in with what we were talking about with warning shots being effective. I mean, it's not like the bear has been wounded, but there's very loud noise uh, and perhaps a significant flash as well. So, There's good evidence that uh, bears can be dissuaded by, you know, a display and sound for both bear spray and for uh, firearms. And it strikes me as silly to say that, uh, oh, yeah, bear spray is effective with sound, but we're not going to count warning shots as being effective. (laughs) So you have to include warning shots in a reasonable To get a reasonable understanding of how effective firearms are. Yes. I would
1: imagine so. I would imagine so. I just, I just, um, is it getting any better? The people that are going out into the wild now, are they beginning to become aware of the fact that we need to be ready for this?
2: I think so. I I think we're having a significant effect. Um, While I don't spend as much time on forums on the Internet as I used to because I'm busy writing and researching, Uh, I've noticed a change in the tone on forums and there's, I just don't see people making the claim that handguns are ineffective to defend against bears anymore. And I I have a brother who has spent a lot of time on the forums and uh, he says the same thing. And he's more on hunting forums that uh, it's just hard to find people to make the claim that handguns are not effective. And what, What we look at, when I was looking at this study by Herrero and Smith, I saw something that really piqued my interest that I hadn't really done the calculations on before. And they're talking about in the neighborhood of, uh, 213 or so incidents for handguns and long guns where they investigated. And, and they really, in my opinion, they, it appears they, Cherry the data. Well, you say, let's say there was um, selection bias. They talk openly about we, their. Selection
1: bias. We have run out of time. I was, I was listening to you too much. Thank you for joining me this week. It's always a pleasure. Yes, sir. Never been about gun control. It's always going to be about total control. I'll catch you on Monday. Everybody, stay safe. This has been Lock and Load.